Welcome to the Emroid Digest Podcast. I am your host, Chumo Bineme, PGY6 fellow at Emory University. Uh, I will be joined by my typical co-host uh, in the latter half of the show. Uh, but if you're joining us for the first time or repeat listener, every month we review recent guidelines and reviews within the field of gastroenterology and hepatology uh, and discuss the more salient points via the use of clinical cases. So um, today we do not have a clinical case, but we do have a great episode for you. And we actually have a, a new voice. Um, uh, he's going to get a formal introduction in the latter part of the podcast. <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to the Emroid Digest podcast. I am so glad you could join us today. We have not one, but two amazing guests uh, for this episode. Uh, so one uh, is, is our very own transplant hepatology fellow, uh, Dr. Andrew Yu. Uh, he has interest in both transplant and advanced endoscopy. Uh, and after his transplant uh, training, he's planning on doing an advanced um, uh, fellowship at University of California, Irvine, uh, where he'll, he'll be training in ERCP, bariatrics, and EUS uh based liver techniques. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, and I also have the esteemed pleasure of introducing uh, Dr. Guadalupe Garcia Tsao, um, who is a co-author on the, the recent uh, new Pepino 7 consensus guidelines on portal hypertension. Uh, she is a professor of medicine at Yale University uh, School of Medicine and chief of uh, digestive diseases at the VA Connecticut Healthcare Center uh, system. She also serves as director of the clinical core of the NIH-funded Yale Liver Center and is the associate editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, she was a past president of ASLD in 2012. Uh, her honors include the International Recognition Award from the European Association for the Study of Liver Disease in 2014 and the Clinical Educator and Mentor Achievement Award from ASLD in 2015. Uh, for the purposes of our discussion, one of the primary authors of the Bovino 7 Guidelines, um, Dr. Garcia Tsell, uh, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I will uh, kick it to, to Jason to sort of get us started. Yeah, once again, thank you so much for spending some time with us on a, on a busy Monday. Um, we always like to begin with sort of an inside the actor's studio take on you and the process of how you became you and your journey into medicine um, and mentorship uh, that, that you had along the way. And the reason the angle we cover that is, um, you know, we have medical students, residents, fellows, junior faculty listening, who are all trying to find their way. And we're very fortunate that you, you wanted to spend some time with us and they'll, they'll look at somebody like you and say, I, I can't do that. I don't know a path to do that. And so we try to give a, a, a human perspective to the writers of the guidelines and, um, and try to tell their story as sort of an inspiration um, and, and not necessarily a guide to follow per se, because everyone's different. Um, but just sort of a sense of, of, of your story behind how you got to where you are. So I just wanted to start off by asking you, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in medicine to begin with. Sure. So, so neither of my parents are doctors. There's no doctors in the family. 
uh, but I loved my biology classes in, in high school. And then um, I looked at the, in, I, I'm from Mexico, also all my studies, including medical school, internship and residency were all in, in Mexico. And so I, you know, I love biology, but then when I looked at the coursework for biology, it didn't play a lot of lab things and I'm a people person. So I said, well, you know, maybe medicine would be the way to go. And so I went into medicine and, and you know, like here I am. But when I was doing the GI um, uh, part of my, med I was a medical student. I had this GI doctors and the GI doctors were usually surgeons. But this guy, um, you know, gave us a little booklet to study that was called the jaundice patient. And it was from a Mexican gastroenterologist. He had written a little, it was a pamphlet, but it was hardcover. It was green, I remember it, and, and it had all the pathways of bilirubin, and, and I was fascinated by that. I said, you know what? I can totally diagnose a jaundice patient. It was called the jaundice patient. I said, I can totally do this. And so as a medical student, I hung out with, you know, my fellow students would say, oh, Lupe, there's a jaundice patient. So I would go and figure it out, That's and cool. I hung out with people that were hepatologists, so um, Dr. David Kersinovich, who had just been um, trained with um, Dr. Sheila Sherlock in the UK, uh, had just recently arrived back to Mexico, so I, you know, I would follow him around when he would come and run with the patients, and then in my last year of medical school, you have a chance of doing uh, research, so I applied to do research with him, and I, and I did it. So we did things about collagen synthesis, uh, cirrhosis, and I was involved in the, actually my very first clinical trial because it was a colchicine trial for cirrhosis which ended up being published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I was a medical student. I would do the randomization. I would give the placebo tablets or the real tablets. And, and then we were, I get the database. But, I, you know, I was very, very young. And so then, then I went into internal medicine. Uh, and at one point, I sort of got distracted. Because I also liked the thyroid because it had the same pathways. You know, you can figure out where the problem is and so forth. And so my mentor, Kirsten, you know, would check up on me and he said, oh, well, how are you going? And I said, well, you know, I'm lacking thyroid and endocrine. And he said, uh-oh, that's not good. So he invited me to my second liver meeting. And that's what, you know, sort of like say, okay, this is what I really like going to the liver. And that's why I then decided to go to pursue a career hepatitis. So after my GI training in Mexico, which it was only two years, um, we wrote letters to all kinds of uh, people that were doing clinical research in hepatology in the U.S. And I had two options. One of them was to come to New Haven, to Yale, and the other one was in Northwestern. But I, I liked the fact that, that I had met Dr. Khan, Harold Khan, who was going to be my mentor in the, in the U.S., and that New Haven seemed to be like right by the water. And I loved the water. Of course, it wasn't like the beaches in Mexico, but whatever, you know, so I ended up here. <laughs> So then I, I was here as a fellow, uh, and then actually I went back to Mexico because my goal was to become a hepatologist, like a, my mentors had, and be a attending down in Mexico. So I was there for three, four years. Found it difficult because um, I was I loved the hospital, I loved the fellows, I loved rounding with the fellows, did all the things that I did here as a fellow. But you cannot live on the salary of. Uh, of in a in a in a you know an institution the academic institution you're gonna live off of that salary you have to have a separate private price the the the, the uh, it's entirely different than in the U S so so 
I would have to drive in this horrible traffic to go to my private office. And I, it was GI, it was liver. I would see irritable bowel syndrome, which is like, I, I mean, I went into GI because of the liver, not because yeah. of the diarrhea. Anyhow, so that sort of discouraged me. And so I'd ride around couple, three, four years that I had been there, um, Jim Boyer called me and offered me a job back as, as, a, as an attendant. I came back. Very cool. Now, you mentioned some key moments of mentorship for you, and I think all of us that have right. gotten to this point in the career um, yes. appreciate that. Can you tell us a little bit more yes. about that? Also with the caveat of totally. what do you think it means to be a good mentee and what do you think it means to be a good mentor? Yeah. So, so, so when I got to New Haven, Harold Kahn was my main mentor, right? But like two weeks before I got here, he calls me in Mexico and says, you know, I'm going on sabbatical, but your lab is all year for one year. And you're, you're, my lab's all year, like, what? What? Oh, I, I, so I, yes. So I got here. He said, oh, we'll be, there was no Zoom at that time. Right? We were talking centuries <laughs> ago. So... So we would, he said, we'll talk on the phone because I'll leave you my lab and my people and we have these projects going on. And so I said, yeah, well, so I got there. There were some protocols that were ongoing and I said, okay, let me try and, re- and understand what these projects are about, recruit patients. There was a study about ammonia, metabolism in stool and so forth with that, in that at the lab. So I worked on that, but, but it turns out that at that time, Roberto Grossman, uh, was returning, who was another faculty at the VA, was returning from his sabbatical in London. And it wasn't in London, it was in England somewhere. And so he came and he was a portal hypertensionizer. So Harold Kahn was SVP, ascites encephalopathy. Roberto Grossman was portal hypertension, measurement of HBPG. So because I had no in-person mentor, I hung out with Dr. Grossman. So that's why I have these two lines so where cool. I the Harold Kahn thing, and I also had Roberto. So these were my two primary mentors. And, and you know, that's why, in a way, I have the two lines of, of, of research. And that's why I, I involve, like, cirrhosis in general, you know, although it may be a little too much because at that time maybe not, not much was known so I could handle. Right now I think it's a little bit too much to do, like, the two whole areas. So so now we have compensated cirrhosis. You have decompensated. It's more portal hypertension. Decompensated is is another thing and so as I so yes I've learned clearly from my mentors what to do and what not to do right so you learn from everything you know first of all I guess bringing someone when you're about to go on sabbatical is not a cool thing um but it gave me opportunity, right? So, bottom line, you have to seize whatever problems are. You know, you 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 can find a way out, right? It's not the end of the world. I I was a little shocked, but I said, okay, we'll figure it out. You know, you can always figure things out. And I want to give that to, for my mentees. I'm I um we have, for example, we have um they come to me at the beginning. They would come to me. Uh, for ideas and I I would give them ideas. Now lately I want them to come with an idea. So Mm -hmm. they must have at least read my papers or read something and and, and from seeing patients, they can come with an idea and then say, you know, I still have some, some, so so I have ideas and I have a fellow who wants to work on it. I tell the fellow, what if we work on this? And the fellow may decide yes or no or, or whatever. Usually, the more younger ones are the ones that 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 need more to know what the project is going to be about. Yeah. But the more mature ones, many of them come already with an idea, and I love that. And then I can say, hey, "This is a good idea, bad idea. 
if this is not a perfect idea, we can spin it so that we can make it to, to where something is feasible. Yeah. So then once we're in my group, we have weekly meetings where we describe the protocol to the other members of the team. And then there's feedback from everybody in the team as to how this project is this okay, is this not okay. And then we go ahead and we start recruiting and so forth. And, and that is discussed at every weekly meeting. So that, that is how I keep, uh, you know, contact now with the pandemic and everything else. We we now do we used to do them all in person. Yeah. And now I mean, it, it's a little better because some of them are in clinical activities over at Yale or even here and then now can join even on Zoom. So I so so I maintain a relationship with with the folks. And then, of course, I mentor them if they have to make presentations or uh, any results. We discuss them. We we have the liver center um, uh, clinical core, which is an NIH. Um, we have a, a liver center from the NIH, and I am the director of the clinical core, and that has a biorepository from which we can also do research, and we also have statistical support. Mm. So, um, so for that, once we have the results, I you know I I, I did some statistical courses as well, so I know the big. I've, I'm, I'm not doing it anymore, but I know how to set up a database. What do we want there? What variables we want? What are we going to compare and so forth? So, so once we have the data, the, 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 the data collected, we start involving the statisticians earlier on, so that we, we, we have, so we have a joint meeting with the statisticians to figure out, you know, what it is, what we're going to do. And I like working with statisticians. The fellows can do their own analysis. But never will I just let them do the analysis. Usually yeah. it's confirmed that this should be that this makes me a little bit more comfortable, you know, just in case they want to delete something, you know, whatever. I, I just want to make sure that there's an independent body that is looking at the data. That's a that's a great sort of infrastructure that you you have built it's, a, it's an overall structure you know so i started obviously by being junior faculty you don't start by having your group right you then you look for more senior even when i was faculty when i was junior faculty i still work with dr grossman uh, dr khan by then has sort of retired so I, I was mostly with dr rosa but i pursued certain things and actually i did some studies with dr boyer so i would do as junior faculty i was still doing then and then i was have by then i would have Fellows, you know, or 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 yeah, well, I was the lowest rung, right? So in the in the faculty ladder, so I would get fellows that would work with me. Yeah. Um, one last question, if I've got time for it. Um, a, a, a trainee that comes to you seeking mentorship mm -hmm. or guidance in a project, what's a basic skill set that they really should have, or do they even need a basic skill set before they try to embark on a project? Well, it's always great that they have some kind of experience. I mean, for me, it's always, um, it, it's, it, it depends. So I assess what the experience is. And then it may just well be that, that, that the project then has to do more with data collection than with analysis or anything else. And as it progresses, I always want to have a protocol written, right? Yeah. So that at least they try and write the protocol and figure out what part they can do and they cannot do. So they have at least to have that skill yeah. of, and that's usually not yeah. correct, but at least to know what we want, what is the objective of the study, how we're planning on doing this, how many pages we would need, et cetera. Not even that, but but some kind of idea of what we want to explore. And I've had all kinds. I have some that have been unexposed entirely, but are willing to go into patient charts and look at the charts or look at the data, et cetera. There are others that are willing to go recruit patients, that there are get samples and so forth. 
and there are others that are more, a little more experienced that are willing to now do even the analysis yeah. and work together with the statistician. So a range of things. Well, yes. that, that's great. That I appreciate that, and I um, want to throw it over to Andrew and Chuma. It is truly amazing what you've contributed to the field of hepatology. Um, what are some of the coolest, most meaningful projects uh, you've worked on? Whew, that's well, that's my whole career, pretty much. You know, so so yeah. So the cool things that you know that in my so for example, the cutoff of more than two hundred fifty PMNs came from research that I did as a as a fellow. It was a fellow. I was still a fellow with Harold Kahn. So we did. A, I would go to the ward and get all the SID samples, and we wanted to see if the pH of lactate would be a better in the fluid was going to be a better, um, you know, marker of SVP. But we ended up saying that the cutoff of more than 250 was actually the best one. And then, for example, for for portal hypertension, actually, so so. You know, we came up with the concept of clinically significant portal hypertension with working with a fellow who was Cristina Ripor, who came to work with me, and we had the database from the Tim Old database. And I said, you know, Cristina, I'm really interested in decomposition because Dr. Grossman was much more interested in 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 the process and the pathogenesis and everything else. And I said, you know, let's see if this has, we see know these phases, let's see if they decompensate. So I started this project with Christina. And so we came up with the concept of clinically significant poor hypertension, uh, which we defined as more than 10. And that's the paper by Ripoll that is quoted by everybody. So this came from working uh, with me, essentially. And Dr. Groth, wow. of course. Wow. That's a... Uh... That's that's awesome. It's, it's, uh, it sounds like you've had I mean, a, the, a quite the illustrious I mean, career. Off the top of my head, those are the two that are, to me, the most relevant. And actually, I came up with the term clinically significant for her because we had to write the abstract for this study. And I said, what are we going to call this? What are we going to call this? I said, what about <laughs> clinically significant portal hypertension? Right, right. Actually, I, I haven't told anybody. You're the first ones that are hearing this, I think. <laughs> I love it. We're uncovering uh, the history on the, on the Digest know. podcast. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe other <laughs> um, people may claim, but no, because I have the abstract to prove that this is an abstract that we wrote for the <laughs> Yeah. Yes. I love it. Um, I wanted to see if we could shift to uh, to Andrew just for a little bit, because I know I know you you both got to go to you know ASLD, which sounds like I mean maybe it was ages ago back in November. But um, I wanted to see maybe Andrew, if you could, I don't know, tell us about any interesting abstracts or, or posters, and then uh, Dr. G, you can jump in afterwards when he's. Uh... Yes, absolutely. Uh, the liver meeting was massive, and there were so many amazing presentations that were happening concurrently. Um, but I did want to quickly highlight some of the sessions that I really enjoyed uh, myself. Um, first, um, Dr. Massimo Pinzani. Um, gave a lecture uh, talking about um, the potential of reversing cirrhosis, um, uh, speaking on pharmacogenesis and how it's distinct um, uh, between the various etiologies of liver uh, injury and even how HVPG should be calibra calibrated per etiology. Um, he presented some interesting data about using macrophages to reverse fibrosis um, and um, also spoke about um, recompensation after treatment of particular etiology of, of disease. Um, so I look forward to seeing what's in store in the future of, of that realm. I um, also really enjoyed uh, attending 
Dr. Neka Uferi's talk about prognostic uncertainty in palliative care. Um, I think uh, we often focus on survival, um, and uh, in her lecture, um, she challenged us to increase our awareness of other things that patients and their families may be going through. Um, I uh, really liked uh, this framework that she um, talked about, which is called the best case, worst case, most likely framework, um, and it's really useful um, uh, to apply when talking to families, and I've actually incorporated that into my own practice. Um, I also wanted to highlight the uh, artificial intelligence, uh, the AI workshop. Um, machine learning has been a growing tool in research and uh, uh, clinical care, um, but it, to me, has kind of been this vague black box, um, kind of like a kidney. Um, the uh, Dr. Monica Tinkopa um, uh, talked about machine learning and gave a great overview um, and distilled um, the main types of supervised um, and unsupervised learning uh, to a form that was really easy to understand and conceptualize. And um, it's going to be really exciting to see what um, uh, comes forth uh, in, this, in this field. Um, this, uh, there are a whole list of things um, that I, I also wanted to kind of um, give a shout out to. Um, early terlipressin, um, sarcopenia, Bovino 7 validation, um, and the Telefi score to assess frailty over televisits, but probably the, the session that I won't ever uh, miss um, at an ASLD are the debates. This year we had really fun debates on transplantation in patients with HCC on immune checkpoint inhibitors and also another debate on checking cell counts um, for every uh, large volume paracentesis. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, uh, Dr. Garcia, were there any particular, you know, sessions you enjoyed? Or? So I guess, I guess to put everything in context, what you have said, we have to always think of the stages of cirrhosis, of where is the patient in a natural hitch of cirrhosis. And all of these things will apply to different stages, all the things that you have been talking about. So always think of who is a patient. Cirrhosis is not just cirrhosis and cirrhosis. So the first thing is patient with chronic liver disease, right? They may develop first cirrhosis, you know, uh, that is that is associated with no clinical significant portal hypertension, right? And then it advances to cirrhosis with clinically significant portal hypertension because the, the key here is the patient that's compensated, the median survival is going to exceed, you know, 15 years, 12 years, right? Whereas once the patient decompensates and the decompensation is defined by the development of ascites, which is the most common, varicell hemorrhage or encephalopathy, all right? So, and that's a game changer. Right there, that patient's median survival is gonna go down to one and a half years. So from 12 years to one and a half years or 15, 12 to 15 years. So the, your, your approach to the patient with cirrhosis has everything to do with what stage of cirrhosis it is. Then there's a stage of further decompensation where, where the cirrhosis is even 
lower, which is the patient that now has complications of the complications. Now the ascites is not responding to diuretics. The patient is 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 more encephalopathic, has recurrent encephalopathy, etc. And then you have the patients that are in patients that have an acute injury on top of the cirrhosis that's acute on chronic liver failure. So you have to, when you think of these abstracts and when you think of these presentations, you have to always see where in the natural history of the disease you are. So let's start with the, with the compensated cirrhotic patient. So the compensated patient with cirrhosis, yes, the main process is fibrogenesis and, and, and liver regeneration, right? And like Dr. Pinsani said, and, and the issue is when the, the fibrous tissue, the cirrhosis is defined by fibrous tissue that surrounds nodules, right? And at the beginning, these, this fibrous tissue may be thin septa, thin septa that are, as the disease progresses, the septa, are, the fibrous septa became, become very thick. And now there are also hemodynamic abnormalities that are, that are su supporting portal hypertension. So what Dr. Pinsani is probably talking about is probably when is, when is cirrhosis reversible? And it's probably just reversible when you have mild portal hypertension, when the septa are very thin. That's when we have seen that with treatment of hepatitis C, for example, you may see reversion to a non-serotic stage. And there's several examples of that. Or even the thick septa may become a little thinner. And the patient now, instead of having clinically significant portal hypertension, they, now they go to mild portal hypertension. That, for me, is, is some kind of reversibility of cirrhosis. Now, we, we, we this is an area that for me now is fascinating. I want to identify who are these patients. If this is true, who are the patients that are really more likely to reverse to a non-serotic stage? Is it, I think that beyond uh, you know, uh, using macrophages or whatever, what you want to do is treat the etiology. Once you get rid of the etiology, and this is like what is fascinating, you get rid of hepatitis C, this cirrhosis reverses. Not at all. So we have to figure out who are these people with cirrhosis in whom the fibrous tissue go away. These patients are never going to decompensate. And we have patients with alcoholic liver disease that came from being further decompensated, right, to being compensated and still have clinically significant portal hypertension, but they're living totally fine. So we have reversibility of cirrhosis, but we also have recompensation. For recompensation, we're talking about the decompensated patient that, that now converts to the compensated patient. Our main goal, therefore, in the compensated cirrhosis, that we are, for, for the regression, we, we still have to define who are the patients that regress and that we're not going to be worried about cancer, for example. For now, we still worry about them developing cancer because I, I don't think that that risk may never go away, but we don't know that. We do know that if the, if the, if the pressure goes down and the fibroid scan goes down, they are no longer going to have um, ascites, for example. And so then you can be a little, or they may not have significant portal hypertension where they may make varices and bleed. So if that's the case, you can stop the beta blockers. They don't need anything more, right? But we're defining this. Now, in the patient that ha that is still very compensated but is at risk of decompensating, and that risk is given by the presence of clinically significant portal hypertension, that's where we have to act. 
you have to give them beta blockers to prevent decompensation from occurring. And that's the only therapy for now. Maybe statins will, enha will enhance the effect of beta blockers, so you have to prevent decompensation from occurring. So you have to be very, the, the, the compensated patient can look like any one of us. They don't have sarcopenia, they don't have, they, they, they look like any normal human being. So you're not gonna be worrying about palliative care or frailty or anything in the compensated patient. What your goal is, is to prevent decompensation. Was the patient decompensated? Yes. Then you start worrying about other things, other things that are not just the main decompensated. You want to treat the SIs, you want to make sure they don't bleed, etc. You want to make sure, you know, probably that to diagnose SVP earlier on. And yes, you want to figure out what is the muscle mass, is the patient frail or not. And that applies much more to uh, further decompensation than to the purely decompensated patient. So, and, and again, all these models of frailty and everything, those apply to the decompensated patient with stroke. So, so again, and, and, and yes, and the less muscle mass, the more the, there's going to be encephalopathy, the, the, the more the patients are going to get complicated. So you have to make sure that that is something that you can reverse or you can improve, all right? Right. In terms of machine learning, I, you know, I'm, I guess, cool with that. I always like, my thing in life has always been seeing the patient, all right? So I don't want a machine to tell me whatever. Uh, do you see what I'm saying? I'm a doctor. I went into medicine precisely because I liked human beings. One of my other things that I liked when I, before I decided on medicine was, was, was mathematics. I don't know what came into it, but I wanted to be actuarian. So that's where machine learning would have been. I would have, it maybe it would have been, but then I decided no, I do not like that. I want, I want to see the patient. I want to see a bunch of patients. I want to learn from the patient, him or herself. I understand that AI may be important to, you know, maybe important to figure out what, what, what the pathophysiological basis of certain decompensations may be because it gets you, it allows you. I still have to think um, better about what is the, 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 the role of AE in all this. I, um, I think it's exploratory for now. I still think that going and examining the patient is, is more important than anything else. Yeah, yeah. I did want to kind of touch on maybe um, you you had mentioned I guess the importance of you you mentioned a lot, but you you mentioned the importance of you know non-selective beta blockers, mm -hmm. and then also thinking about like how to prevent I guess the first decompensation. Absolutely, um, uh, that is the key. Prevent the first decompensating event. So for that, you need to diagnose cirrhosis, right? So you have to have because compensated cirrhosis is entirely asymptomatic. So our goal is to recognize chronic liver disease, and this goes down to primary care, right? They have chronic liver disease. Who has cirrhosis? Who does not have cirrhosis? And those who have cirrhosis, we want to prevent decompensation. Yes. Yeah. And then it looks like, I mean, in, in the Bovino consensus, it seemed like there was a real emphasis on using, you know, liver stiffness measurements to help sort of grade, you, you know, help you yeah, determine it. So I guess, um, you know, maybe could you kind of talk to us about the rule of five and, and sure. how you kind of use it for, you know, sure. parasitial screening and all A hundred percent. So here's the deal. So, yeah. Because, yeah, we were, we, I mean, so we did the study that looked at the HVPG, and we figured that the HVPG more than 10 is clinically significant portal hypertension, but this is not practical, clearly. No one, is, I, I do not want anybody that who to measure the HVPG in clinical practice, all right? 
I think they Ruidal don't know how to do it. They don't measure it properly. It's a disaster. For research, if I had a new drug right now for NASH portal hypertension, you have to have HVG measurements. All right. If you if you're if you're hypothesis is that this new medication lowers portal pressure, you have to measure the HVPG, right? No question about it. But for clinical practice, we can, it's impractical. It's, 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 it's really not very practical and not very accurate to measure the HVPG. So I, I would not recommend. So if we cannot measure it, you know, invasively, what are the non-invasive ways to figure out that a patient with cirrhosis has clinically significant portal hypertension or CSPH? Well, one of them is if they have collaterals on imaging, for example, because for, for varices and collaterals do not open up until you've reached that level of pressure. If you have varices or if you have collaterals on imaging, that by definition has you have CSPH. But even better than that, where they don't even have to go to radiology, you can do it right in your clinic, is if you measure the liver stiffness, okay? So this this is the results of thousands of, of fiber scans that have been done mostly in Europe. So this is all using the fiber scan, transient elastomer. We, we're hoping that we can get cutoffs for, for, for other machines that may be measuring liver stiffness. But we have the, 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 the strength of the data is using fiber scan, which unfortunately, the only person, the, the only company that does it here is is, is EchoSense, so we all have to buy the fiber scan, right? Anyhow, so in that in that body of work, there's been so there's a nomogram. There's the anticipate study, the very first um, anticipate study looked at a nomogram. Uh, you can look at the paper, and it has platelet count and it has liver stiffness. And based on that nomogram, you can see who is 60% more likely to have CSPH. So you can only go by the percentages, right? So the chosen percentage is, is this patient 60, has 60% or more probability of having CSPH. And that's what the anticipated nomogram tells you. But to make it easier so that people don't have to go and calculate the nomogram, the, we, 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 we dumb it down to say, okay, what is CSPH? If you have a liver stiffness more than 25 or a liver stiffness between 20 and 25 and a platelet count of less than 150. So those are the two criteria that define really non-invasively the presence of CSPH. You will probably over-treat some patients, but at the end of the day, what are we giving them? We're giving carvedilol, so it's not going to be, you know, it's, it's, it's not a big deal. But this is what we're using right now. Now, the rule of five. So there's two settings, right, for in which you will use the fiber scan. One is if the patient has cirrhosis or not, correct? Is in any chronic liver disease, you want to know whether the patient has cirrhosis or not. Once you know that the patient has cirrhosis, then you have, your question is, does this patient have CSPH or not? So for diagnosing cirrhosis, if you have between 5 and 10, you are unlikely to have cirrhosis. What is called, it's not cirrhosis, they call it cackled, which is compensated advanced chronic liver disease. And that this is the non-invasive way to say cirrhosis. Because cirrhosis implies that you have done a liver biopsy, correct? And these patients are not getting a liver biopsy. So you, you all, right. all we're saying is that the liver is very stiff, right? So cackled <laughs> means cirrhosis in a non-invasive way. 
We did not do the reverse. We just measured the stiffness, okay? So cackle, it, it, if, if they have between 5 and 10, there's no cackle, no no advanced fibrosis, cirrhosis, you're cool, right? Between 10 and 15, we're not entirely sure. That's sort of like an indeterminate. It's, it, they could, but they could not have. More than 15, you're pretty sure that they have cackled. More than 20 to 25, then they have definitely cackled. More than 20, they definitely have cackled. And that's when you go 20 to 25 with platelets or more than 25 for clinically significant portal hypertension. You understand? Yes, that was, uh, that was actually really helpful. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I suppose like no, anything else, right? No, 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 no. It was great because, uh, you know, the, no, the diagram I, I and the, this is very, this is sort of confusing. All right. I, I it's it tricky. Has, yeah. Yeah. It's a little tricky, especially cause you know, you know, once you start using non-invasive tests, it's kind of like, you know, a surrogate for a surrogate. Now, That's what kind of is. You know? Having said this, this is also nuanced. It isn't like you just, everything has to be in the context of the patient. Don't forget that, you know. If the patient has, like like the other day, they come to me with a patient who has like like 10, and now they don't know what to do. We're going to an MRE, and you look at the guy has a BMP of 3,000 or something like that. I mean, he has congestive heart failure. So congestion is going to increase the stiffness, right? So therefore, you know, Whatever modality you do, the stiffness is going to be higher because the liver is congested. If there's acute injury, so so you have to think. Think of the patient. There has to be a thought process going on when you see a patient, right? You're not just doing things just to do things. So I hear interpret all the fiber scan, all right? And so they give me the they give me the thing. You know, I have the the, the page. I look at the, at the at the weights, make sure that they're totally parallel, that everything it looks fine, right? Then the, this is 8.9, which is in sort of indeterminate, right? So I'm not entirely sure about this. So it doesn't look like so, but it's not entirely normal. Normal is like like more towards you know five. 8.9 is very near 10, so I'm not totally happy about this. So I have to go into and see the chart. And see right. why did they do it? What is going on? And this is actually, this is actually a failure patient. But anyhow, so 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 you know, so so I I interpreted based in the in the context of the patient. Okay. So now I'm curious about you mentioned about the importance of carvedilol. Well, well, wait, uh, before I go ahead, <laughs> this has to be you interpret. You look at the variability. So this is a very nice fiber scan, but but. When they give you a value, you're not seeing the thing. It may be a horrible thing. I don't have an example of a really horrible one. Uh, no. Right. Uh, but my people have learned, you know, so they give, have to give me a low variability. They have to give me the very nice curve. So so you have to also make sure. So, you know, look at the variability. If the variability is more than 10%, this is this is like, a, it says 30% in the guidelines. But if, if it's 30%, I don't even take that fiber scan into account. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. No, that's helpful. Okay. Um, so, yes, specifically, I guess, Carvedilol, because I feel like that's the one that's mm-hmm. risen to the, yep. to the top. Yep. Um, I guess I'd want to talk about why Carvedilol and then how do you monitor patients after you start them on? Yeah, that's cool. We like that. So we used to be, <laughs> I, we used to be propanol people, right? Because we had done all this stuff with propanol, blah, blah. And it turns out, you know, that, that, 
Carrero is an oscillator. So how, how does propanol work? Propanol works by decreasing splactic blood flow by causing splactic vasoconstriction. So there's less flow into the portal venous system. And it also acts by decreasing heart rate, right? By decreasing, just lowering the pumping. So this we know lowers portal pressure, it lowers the HVPG. In all the studies that, that compared propanol versus carvedil, they found that carvedil actually lowers the HVPG much more. And it does that because it has the alpha-1 adrenergic vasodilating activity, which we think is acting inside the liver by dilating the, the vessels inside the liver. So you have a decrease in resistance inside the liver, a decrease in flow because of the beta adrenergic blockade activity, you see? So it's a dual activity. And there's a, a recent meta-analysis by Villanueva that compared all the studies of, of, of carvedil versus ligation, uh, to prevent bleeding and so forth, and it showed that carvedil is actually associated with it, with a with a um, uh, improvement in survival. So carvedil, and in the in the uh, Predesi trial, when the uh, half of well, two thirds of the patients that were randomized to beta blockers got propanol, one third got carvedil, and in post hoc analysis, which again is 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 not your best analysis, but in post hoc analysis, they found that carvedil seemed to have less outcomes and a lower a greater reduction in portal pressure. So based on all this evidence, the conclusion was that, that carvedil is the preferred beta blocker in cirrhosis. And how do we use it? So it turns out, and we have been finding it so much easier to use. We were, I don't know, we were scared of carvedil precisely because of that vasodilating activity, which we thought would, would drop their blood pressure, right? And it, it may, and it may in some period, but since now our main etiology, I think, is NASH, they already are, many of them may already be on carvedil or on a beta blocker because they are hypertensive. So I think that that's, that's a unique opportunity for us. So now we start carvedil, you, you start at 3.125, and the Predestine trial used it only once a day. One can use it twice a day, I guess, but it's much easier to use. The only thing, is, so you go up to six point, you go to twelve point five every day, and that's about the the pregnancy trial went to twenty five, but the standard though, the, those that seem to be used in all of the trials and everything seems to be twelve point five. So if they're on twelve point five every day, it's fine, and we haven't had to reduce it in any any patient. They don't get bradycardic as they did with propanolol. Somehow, they don't get hypotensive. These patients that we're treating don't get hypotensive, and they definitely do not get bradycardic. And with propanol, our main issue was that we had to lower the dose or the patients were intolerable because the, because the heart rate would, would drop. And so what we're seeing right now is like actually a surprise that they're really not getting uh, any side effects. Yeah. And then um, do you um, – I'm just thinking – you know, who are the patients that you actually, uh, is it, is it just anybody who has clinically significant portal hypertension and then you, you, then you get rid of, you know, endoscopy, uh -huh. variceal screening wise. Yep. Okay. Well, and then is there really. In fact, in fact, now that we have NASH, let's say I have a NASH patient that has 25 and the patient's already on a beta blocker. Oh, maybe I will. Uh, yeah, I have to do the fiber scan because I have to figure out if they have CSPH or not, right? If they do it, the patient's already on carvedil, they, we just, or, or on a beta block, we just switch them to carvedil. All right? We do not, so 
The only people that need an endoscopy are patients that are intolerant to beta Because then you have to ligate those vessels if, they, if the patient has bears. Right. Um, and then what about the patients who are, I guess, non-responders to something like carvedilar? Are you know. That yeah, that's another that's another know. question. Yeah. No, 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 no. There's going to be a percentage that are not going to respond for sure. You know, right. not all right. are responders, but, but you we would do the same when you saw that they had varices. There will always be patients that are not responders. Nobody. Right. Oh, okay. So in Europe, they used to do this. Okay, so here's the deal. They used to start patient has. Uh, varices, right, or CSP. They would start them on, on propanol, and then a month later, they would measure the HPG again. And if the pressure had not gone, and there the hepatitis are doing actually the measures, so they're well done, right? So they would repeat it in some time, one month, two months, and if the, if the HPG had not gone down, they would ban the varices, right? Now, there's an incredible Dr. Juan Abral that you should get for another interview. He's, 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 he's like a, a colleague of mine that is very um, near to my heart, and he is a genius, all right? So, so he did this study looking at, um, it's very difficult. I wrote the editorial on this where I translate what is there in, in the study, but he essentially did all the placebo trials of a drug that lowers portal pressure, right? So just look at the placebo arms. So theoretically, the placebo arms, you would have nothing before and after, right? It would go, there would be no change. And in fact, he finds that in, if you take the group, the placebo group before, and the placebo groups after being on placebo, they found, he finds that the difference in HVPG is zero. There's no differences. But the individuals were all over the place. You know, there were, some would go down, some would go up. So, so essentially, the individual response is not useful to titrate beta blockers. It's good when you're doing a clinical trial to figure out if you need a placebo control. And then, you know, the, the, the study group, in, a, in general, the whole group will stay the same in the placebo. And if the if drug works, the whole group will go down with the, with, with, with the therapy, right? Do you, are you kidding me? Whereas yeah, if you look at yeah. individuals, you could have even a 30% decrease on a placebo in a given period, or a 30% increase. Bottom line from this study was that looking at individual changes in HVPG should not be done to titrate the response to beta blockers. So once you start on the beta blockers, you just say, you know, this patient is going to have a lesser chance to bleed. If this patient is going to bleed or not, you don't know. But the but the chance but but the study shows that it's significantly less than if you did nothing. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, so so then what happens? Uh, let's say you put them on a beta blocker and then they do bleed well, on the beta you're blocker. Fine. I mean, no, the patient is not fine. But you're <laughs> no. Hey, that's a great question actually. We don't exactly know because they fail beta blockers in a way, right? So now, mm -hmm. right now, the guidelines, including the guidelines that are going to come out, are going to say that that patient that was on beta blockers and bled, once they you recover from the bleeding, you do the ligation and beta blockers. My take on this is probably this patient has already shown me that beta blockers are not working. Maybe we should be thinking of tips earlier. So if the patient has ascites, mm -hmm. I would think mm -hmm. of tips like right away. Because they've already shown you that they do not 
do unless they were not compliant, right? But if you think this clinic was really, really very good, was taking the beta blockers despite of which the patient bled, this patient has declared him or herself as a non-responder, right? So therefore, maybe in these patients, if the patient has ascites, I would think very much about thinking of putting a tips earlier rather than later. Yeah. This is not yeah, the guideline. No. This is just your the feeling that you have, but, but you're right. You're spot on on this. So there's a very nice study by um, the group of Dr. Albillos, the first author, Estellas, that showed he took a group of people with ascites. It's all about in the compensated patient, you're unlikely to run into any problems with the beta blocker. In the decompensated patient, because they're more vasodilated, they may be more hypotensive, you run into more. He, they did not do the site with carvedil. They only did it with propanol. So they took patients with refractory ascites and with non-refractory ascites, and they looked at the renal perfusion pressure before and after and then and the and the heart function before and after propanol. And in the patient with, with non-refractory ascites, the changes the renal perfusion pressure did go down, but but they all maintained their the, the renal perfusion pressure over the threshold that actually, you know, um, uh, perfuses the kidneys, right? So it was fine. In the patient with refractory sites, about half of them drop below this threshold and, and a couple of them or more got AKI. So that ain't good. So, but, but this all had to do with dropping their blood pressure. So if the blood pressure drops, so that's why in the patient, especially patient with the size, you have to monitor the blood pressure. Again, this is all with propanol. Maybe carvedil seems to be a better tolerated drug in patients with stroke. So who knows what carvedil does, but if the map goes less than 65 or the systolic goes less than 90, this patient cannot be on beta blockers. Yeah, yeah. Um, as we uh, wind down just a, a bit, uh, I know when we were kind of chatting before the episode, Andrew, you had you were talking about some other newer non-invasive testing or, or scores. Yes. Um, so sometimes... Uh, transient elastography is not available, and re we uh, rely on FIB4 or the NAFLD fibrosis scores um, to help risk stratify our patients. Um, recently uh, published a, a new paper with Dr. Anahita Rabier about um, this FIB4 uh, plus albumin model. Uh, can you talk about um, this exciting new yep. uh, model yep. and um, and and how we and our listeners uh, can apply this to our practice? Yes, yeah, so, so, and there's going to be, yes. So my goal in life has always been to think that people may not afford to have a, less, a fiber scan. And there's countries, I'm, I'm sure the, the majority of the world, of the hepatology practices in the world do not have fiber scan. Think of Africa, et cetera. You know, so... Our, my goal has always been to think, you know, can we get purely lab-based tests to figure out if, 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 if um, someone has CSPH? And we came up with this with Anahita. So the problem with the, well, we, we came up with the FIB4 plus, which the plus is albumin. And we asked for the um, anticipate cohort to validate that. So we did it in a, in, 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 a, in a group of patients that was a little bit sicker than the anticipate. We got the data uh, from the anticipate and we had to correct 
are intercept with, with, with the data from the anticipate study. So this new model that is there in the paper was corrected based on, on the database that we tried to validate our score with. So this new score needs to be in turn validated before we can say this works, all right? So, so the, the, the whole thing is we had to sort of modify our formula based on, on, on the anticipated study that, that, has less, that has more average pages that we would all see. Our, the ones in the Enrickson trial were perhaps sicker pages because they were selected to have more than 12 HVPG. So therefore, in a, in a more general population that was provided by the Anticipate study, we could then correct, modify our uh, formula and come up with the formula that we conclude with in the paper. But that formula has not been validated, so that needs to be validated. That's why it's in hepatology communication and not in hepatology, because if we had validated in another population, it would be great. Now, Dr. Janeska um, has done apparently a group, a, another study, a, a huge study looking at, at lab-based studies, and apparently the fire scan continues to be a very important, the, is the most important part. But if you do not have a fiber scan, I would go about a fifth four plus and, 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 and at least to give you an idea of, of what you are, of where you are. Great. Yeah, and we'll actually, um, we'll be able to link, um, you know, uh, just the website to the fifth four plus yes, model. Yes, there's, so there's a calculator kind of in. and everything that you can use. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfect. Um, so I think uh, maybe I'll close out with this question. You know, an interesting thing about these, um, this consensus guideline was kind of like the uh, the emphasis on research and next steps. Like, you know, every section is sort of here. Are yeah, the, there's you a huge know. list. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot to get through here. Uh, so, uh, you know, to our brave readers, uh, buckle up. But um, I guess what are your... What are your big hopes of like new research that might come out of this consensus guidelines? Or like, what are you hoping, you know, for people to pick up and, and run with? Well, so I guess the main thing that everybody is, is, is talking about is that the Pradesi trial was done using HVPG as a way of measuring CSPH. So we need the trial that shows that actually these liver stiffness things really prevent decompensation, right? Because in the Pradesi trial, CSP was defined by measuring the HVPG. And we're now sort of like translating into saying, okay, if you have a stiff liver, now we do that. One needs to prove that, in fact, doing the liver stiffness and giving coverage is going to prevent decompensation. That is, I think, what people are working on. But we need to find, like other non-invasive methods, we, we, we need to find, you know, other methods to, to see what else can prevent decomposition, like statins, the use of statins. And there's ongoing trials that we're definitely waiting for because statins seem to decrease the intrahepatic resistance. And we have a trial here ongoing that is very difficult to recruit because these are patients with NASH that may require statins. And that's a problem if we had all hepatitis C patients, you know, we would be, we would have been finished recruitment in this trial. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I think I'm going to leave it there. I just want to say thank you to uh, both of our guests this week, uh, Dr. Andrew Yu and Dr. Guadalupe garcia Uh It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, before I do let, let you guys go, um, do you, maybe I'll start with uh, Andrew. Do you have anything that you want to plug or do you, uh, if people want to follow your, your endeavors in California, how do they do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I don't post much, uh, but uh, my Twitter handle is at uh, Michael Andrew U. Reach out anytime. Nice. Uh, perfect. And uh, Dr. Garcia Tsao, can if our listeners want to follow you or anything else you, you'd like to plug before we uh, get off the air? Well, yeah. Well, I guess you can also fill follow me on Twitter, although I I think I'm defined as a lurker rather than a real, so I <laughs> I like things every once in a while when I see something that I don't agree with or that I have a comment that I have to make, I will, you know, so that's always, I guess, useful, and then yeah, uh, just follow the ASLD and all we do. Nice, that's perfect. Well, uh, we are signing off, and, and thank you both for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Hang on to your hats, y'all. Messing is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with science. In a recorded conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast could, should not be considered as replacement for the services of a licensed, trained physician or healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author or guest of this podcast should be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to seek competent medical or health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care, in a legal sense, or as a basis for witness testimony. The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy of the statements or opinions put forth. This podcast and its contents do not necessarily state or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated, professionally, or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast to any specific commercial product, process, services by trade name, trademark manufacturer, or other does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation. Basically, this podcast is solely educational, and don't sue us. All right. See you next time, guys.